0: Hey, it is the ninth weekend of 2021 and that means we are on the ninth chapter of Luke and I'm really excited to share the message with you today. What have been some of the most important questions that you have ever asked? We all ask questions all the time and some of them are more important than others. There are questions like, what time is lunch? And questions like, will you marry me? There are questions like, are you hiring? And questions like, Should I cut the red wire or the blue wire? There are questions like, how are you doing? And questions like, does this shirt make me look fat? In our passage today, we're going to see the two most important questions in life get answered. And I hope that as we make our way through Luke chapter 9, it helps you answer those two important questions for yourself. So let's start reading in verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staff nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart." And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him and was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately to a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And it's right after this that Jesus takes the disciples aside to kind of debrief with them from their ministry travels, that lots of people hear that they're out in this deserted place and come to be with Jesus. And the disciples, Jesus and, and Jesus's disciples, have just made this tour through all of these different regions, and so the name of Jesus is beginning to spread. And so the Bible tells us that five thousand families, five thousand men plus women and children, come out to where Jesus is, and they're all there listening to Jesus, and they're hungry, and there's nothing to eat, and Jesus feeds five thousand people with just one little boy's lunch. And then what happens next, which will be our key text happens as Jesus is discussing with the disciples in verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying. And don't miss another one of these references to Jesus taking time alone to pray. That as he was alone praying, his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah And others say that you're one of the old prophets who is risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, if you have attended Faith Church for a while, you know that this moment, this passage, where Jesus is interacting with the disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? That this is an important passage to our church. That we have taken the scripture in Matthew 16, where Jesus has this conversation and his answer to them and he tells them that this is the bedrock truth that he will build his church upon. And he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we've used that verse of scripture a lot here at Faith Church. And Luke tells us the same story with just a few different details. Whereas Matthew gives us this prophecy that Jesus foretells about the resiliency of the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Luke doesn't give us that prophecy, but what Luke gives us instead is a demonstration of that prophecy. Imagine if Matthew set before us this concept of a powerful pickup truck. It's a drawing, it's a sketch, and he tells us that it will be incredibly strong and powerful in adverse circumstances. And then Luke doesn't show us a concept, but rather Luke shows us that concept in fruition in real life. He shows us the demonstration of the pickup truck's power, and then he pops the head, pops the hood, and shows us how it has as much power as it does. That is what we have here in Luke chapter 9. Luke shows us the resiliency of the church, and he shows us how the church develops such resiliency. Here in this passage, we have a demonstration of the fact that the forces of evil are unable to stop the movement of Jesus. The forces of evil are unable to stop the movement of Jesus. Luke doesn't give us all of the details about John the Baptist's death, but he does mention that Herod beheaded him or had him killed. John the Baptist was originally thrown in jail because he preached against Herod's uh, sinfulness. Herod had all kinds of power, and his power led him to do whatever it was that he wanted sexually. Any woman he wanted to take as a wife, he would take, including the wife of his brother, Philip. And so Herod had taken Philip's wife as his wife. And Herodias, Philip's wife, who then Herod took, was actually their niece. It was the granddaughter of their father, the king before Herod. And so Philip was married to his niece, and then Herod took his niece from Philip and married him, her himself. It's kind of a whole mess. Now, Herod doesn't put John the Baptist to death because he's kind of afraid of him. But Herod's wife, who used to be his sister-in-law and his niece, she wants him dead. And so she sends her daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, and his great-niece to dance before the king. And it's the king's birthday, and he's got a party of friends there, and his stepdaughter slash niece slash great-niece is dancing in front of them, and he is so aroused that he promises to give her anything that she wants. And so she asks for, instructed by her mother, she asks for the head of John the Baptist. On a platter. And so Herod, because he's made this promise, this vow in front of his friends, he presents the head of John the Baptist to her. Now this has happened. And then, after killing John the Baptist, the movement that he started, the movement that he introduced, the movement that he came as the forerunner for, it didn't die. But rather, the movement that John the Baptist started begins to multiply. What happens is that Herod starts to hear of reports of ministry like John the Baptist happening in all of these other places. So much so, it's so similar that people are saying, John the Baptist must have risen from the dead. John the Baptist must be still alive. And Herod's going, I know that I killed this guy, so who is this? You see, evil forces throughout history have often thought if they can just kill the powerful leader of a Christian movement, they'll put a stop to the Christian movement. But what happens instead, whenever the powerful leader, whenever the upfront face, whenever the person who's the most outspoken in Christian circles, whenever he is cut down, rather instead of the movement dying out, people rise up in their place. And instead of the movement dying, the movement again begins to multiply. Alan Hirsch has pointed out that the church is designed to be less like a spider and more like a starfish. Less like a spider and more like a starfish. And the reason that he makes that analogy is that if you cut a spider in half, both halves are dead. But if you cut a starfish in half, both halves will live. You'll have two starfish. If you cut a spider in half, It's dead. But if you cut a starfish in half, you now have two starfish. And the reason that sea stars or starfish reproduce when they're cut in half is because each half has everything that's needed to regenerate and reproduce. In the 1940s, oyster fishermen were tired of so many of their oysters being lost to sea stars or starfish who eat oysters. So whenever they caught them in their nets, they would take a knife and they would cut them in half. They would cut them up and throw them back with all the rest of the stuff that came up in their nets that they didn't want. What they didn't realize was they weren't killing the starfish, they were multiplying the starfish. And over the period of about 10 years, they doubled the amount of starfish in the sea in that area and it completely depleted the oyster population that they were fishing from. God has set the church up to be incredibly resilient because each part of the church should have everything necessary for regeneration and reproduction within it. Hear me, what should have happened when Faith Church went into lockdown? What should have happened in March of 2020 when we went to not gathering in one location but gathering in homes and having services online? What should have happened in that moment is we should have started having 50 gatherings of Faith Church. It should have been something that cut us off from one another, but each segment had enough, had the the basic components with the necessary pieces within itself for regeneration and multiplication. It should have been like 50 pieces of starfish being thrown out in the sea, which now become 50 new starfish, which will reproduce another generation. A couple of years ago, I told you about a church in Oklahoma Herod Church. And I told you the story about um, the pastor's wife there. She passed away from cancer. And at her funeral, they asked women that she had discipled to stand. And so the women that she had personally discipled stood. And they asked them to remain standing. And they said, now, if you have been discipled by one of the women that are currently standing, would you stand? And they asked them to stay standing. And they said, if you have been discipled by any of the women now standing, would you stand? And On the third generation of discipleship, there were over 100 women that had been influenced, been discipled by her or discipled by someone that she discipled or discipled by someone that was discipled by someone that she discipled. And there were over 100 women. And it was was the fulfillment of Jesus' parable that some bring forth a hundredfold. Now, I told you that story years ago to to demonstrate what my hope, my passion, my desire for Faith Church to be, for us to be this disciple-making movement. And I want you to see that 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 not only gave them the opportunity to reproduce, it also made them incredibly resilient. Because Herod Church went into quarantine just like we did in the spring of 2020. But then I saw and was surprised to, to see that they were going into quarantine again in the fall of 2020. And it wasn't because there had been an outbreak of COVID-19 in their church, but rather they were going back to meeting in homes in the fall, not because of COVID concerns, not because of government mandates, but rather because they had seen so much growth and so many gospel conversations take place in the spring when their church was separated. It was separated like pieces of starfish and it was a strategic move to do it again in the fall. What should have happened for Faith Church is we should have been like starfish severed from one another that regenerated and reproduced. Because when that is the the heartbeat of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When the church is truly built upon the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the gates of hell, the powerful forces of evil can have no effect against the church, cannot hinder or slow down the movement of the church. And so what we see in Luke 9 is that Jesus is developing this discipleship movement that is multiplying. In Luke 9 we see 12 disciples or apostles go out into all of these cities in the region around and they go without Jesus. Instead of there being the 13 of them in one location, they go into six locations 2 by 2. In Luke chapter 10, the very next chapter that we'll look at next Sunday, we see that they go into groups of two in a a number of 72 of them. And so it's one group of 13 with some others around them. Then there are six groups of two. And then in Luke 10, there would have been 36 groups of two. Now, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to feed 5,000 families. Jesus is going to feed 5,000 men, and we know that there are children there because one of the other gospel writers tells us that it's a little boy's lunch that they used to multiply and feed all of the people. So most likely, there's between twenty and 30,000 people at this event, enough to fill Roberts Stadium, enough to fill the Ford Center. There's that many people at this moment where Jesus feeds the thousands but this is the last that we hear of this group. This is the last we hear of this large gathering of people because what Luke is focused on is not the huge crowd of thousands, but rather he's focused on the movement of about a hundred disciples. You see, there were large crowds that enjoyed Jesus' teaching and they enjoyed the food that he provided for them. But the group that would make the difference, the group that would reach Luke one day, the group that would start the church was not 25,000 people in a crowd, but rather 100 disciples in a movement. And hear me, 100 disciples is much more powerful than a crowd of thousands. A movement is more powerful than a mega-gathering. And what we need in this day and age is not bigger and bigger crowds, but rather what we need in this day and age is exactly what they needed then and exactly what Jesus developed then. He developed a core of committed, movement-making disciples. So how is it that the church is resilient like this? How is it that this core of disciples would go through all of the adversity and difficulty ahead? How is it that they would face persecution and death and the movement continue to multiply again and again? How did they become starfish? It's because they answered those two most important questions that I referenced earlier. What we see in this passage of Scripture is the two most important questions are answered. The first question is not where Jesus says, Who do the crowds say that I am? But rather when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Now Jesus asked them, What do the crowds say about me? And the crowds had a lot of opinions about Jesus. Some of them thought he was John the Baptist. Some of them thought that he was endued with the spirit of John the Baptist. Some of them thought that he was Elijah or some other great prophet. But the disciples come to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. And so when Jesus says, what do you say about me? Peter says, you are the Christ. And that changes everything. See, the first question, the most important question that we will answer is, who is Jesus? And the second most important question in our lives is, what are you going to do about it? Who is Jesus? And what are you going to do about it? We see these two questions are answered not only in Luke chapter 9, but in all of Luke's writing. Actually, if you take a step back and you look at the 52 chapters that Luke has written across two books, you see that the Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus' life. It's focused on answering the question, who is Jesus? And the book of Acts is all focused on, what do we do about it? Now, obviously, in both of those, you're going to have elements of the other question. Luke's gospel is focused on who is Jesus, but we're already introduced to the actions of the disciples, their reaction to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. In the book of Acts, we will see in great detail what they're going to do about it, but we're also going to be constantly reminded that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the dead. You see, these two questions are intertwined. It's not like you answer the first question and once you've got that right, then you can spend the rest of your life focusing on the second question. It's not like you figure out who Jesus is and then you spend the rest of your life figuring out what to do with it. Both of these questions will constantly be intertwined. The answers to these questions will be constantly intertwined in our lives. Joel Green said it this way, one cannot embody authentic discipleship unless one perceives faithfully the nature of Jesus' person and work. Yet, one cannot adequately comprehend the person and work of Jesus apart from genuine discipleship. In other words, the answer to either of these questions help us answer the other question more thoroughly. The two different questions, the answers aren't contained in silos, they're not separated from one another, but rather they're intermingled and they augment and they help us answer more fully the other question. As you answer the question, who is Jesus to you, you'll better understand how to live in light of that truth. And as you live in light of that truth, you'll be able to better answer who Jesus is. For uh, an illustration of this, we look, we look no further than just one chapter previous where Jesus tells us about the seed and the soil. The life of And fruit-producing, multiplying potential of the seed is all contained in the seed, but it needs soil to land in, to put down roots in, to reproduce in. But once it's in the soil, it has the potential and the power contained within itself to become a large tree, to put down roots, to spread out large branches that provide shade. And your answer to who is Jesus will grow and deepen as he takes root in your life and he spreads the branches of his grace and you bask in the shade and joy and peace of his goodness and his glory. I mean, we see this progression happen in Luke chapter 9. This chapter is all about Jesus. It's all about who is Jesus. It's all about answering that first question. Because in verses 7 to 9, we see Herod asking, who is this guy? In verse 18, Jesus is asking his disciples, what are the crowds saying? In verse 20, he's asking them, what do you say? In 22, Jesus reveals that his ultimate purpose in life is to die on the cross. In verse 29, Jesus' humanity is peeled back on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we see a glimpse of his divinity. In verse 29, as he's praying, the appearance of his face is altered, and his robe becomes white and glistening. In verses 34 and 35, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my Son, hear him. And so this whole chapter is about who is Jesus, but in the middle of this chapter we see what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to live in light of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God? The disciples show up in verse 1 and verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 18, verse 40, and verse 43. Disciples are mentioned by name in verse 20, 28, 32, 33, and 49. All 12 of the disciples, who are also his apostles, were sent out to do the kingdom work in the name of Jesus. And in this passage, we see the disciples doing ministry in Jesus' name. We see Peter answering the question, Who is Jesus? correctly. But we also see the the disciples making a real mess of things. When they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter sticks his foot in his mouth and says, hey, we should build a temple and we should just stay up here. Jesus ignores him and goes back down the mountain to do ministry among the people. In verse 54, we see that they go to a Samaritan village and the people don't accept Jesus. And so the disciples ask Jesus, hey, should we call fire down from heaven to destroy these people? Jesus says, what are you talking about? You don't even know whose spirit you're in. He says, you don't get me. Hear me, all right? You might be able to answer the question, who is Jesus, well enough to get the right, to answer it correctly for the Sunday School Trivia Review Game. But that doesn't mean that you really understand Jesus. I mean, have you ever been surprised at how wrong someone was about you? Like, maybe they got you a gift and you're like, that that's not me why in the world would they think that i like this i remember a, a home depot father's day commercial years ago it was it was airing about the time nicole and i were working on this major health project and the tagline was this year give dad the gift of doing and i thought man they sure don't know me um Home Depot sure didn't have me in mind because the last thing I want is another thing to do. I've got plenty to do. This Father's Day, give me a steak and a nap. That's all I want. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, but he didn't fully understand what that meant. He didn't understand what Jesus was about. And Peter would spend his life constantly learning. It wasn't that Peter got the question right and then he graduated from the school of Christ. But rather, Peter got the answer right that who Jesus was. And then he recognized that he would be spending the rest of his life coming to know him and living for him. Who is Jesus and what are you going to do about it? Jesus is the Son of God. And what you're going to do about it is spend the rest of your life pursuing him and coming to know him. I'm afraid that we've become complacent with just knowing enough about Jesus to get by. I'm afraid that we have been duped into thinking that as long as we can answer the first question correctly, that we're good. That in heaven, at the pearly gates, there's a one-question theology test, and as long as we get it right, we get to go in. I'm afraid that we'd really like for discipleship to just be scheduled for us, programmed for us, offered for us. And we'd really like for it to be on a convenient basis for our busy schedule because things are just crazy right now. Can I just tell you, Jesus is the Son of God and that should change everything. Jesus is the Son of God and what you do about that should not fit into wherever it is convenient for you. It should change everything about your life. Because if it's true, it changes everything. And as it changes everything, you'll come to see just how profound and true it is and how it's deeper and more beautiful than you can ever imagine. Listen, if you are waiting for things to become more convenient to follow Jesus, it will never be convenient. If you're waiting for things to calm down before you follow and serve Jesus, they will never calm down. I want you to look at the final verses of chapter nine. Verse 59 of Luke nine says this. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, 'Let let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to them, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And hearing that, it might sound really extreme. Jesus won't let this man go and bury his father. Now, most likely it doesn't mean that this guy was dead and they needed to put him in the ground. But rather, this man is saying, listen, I've got things to take care of. And once my father passes away in the years ahead, then I'll be free to do whatever it is I want. we got plenty of time, right, Jesus? This man who's saying, let me go bid them farewell that are at my house. He's saying, Jesus, this is not a good time for me. I've got a lot going on at my house right now. If you'll just let me go and get those people out of my house or maybe send my kids off or whatever it was. It's just not a good time right now. And Jesus said anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that following him should be so important that everything else reorganizes around that instead of following Jesus, fitting in where there's a gap and what's already going on. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting, but rather it has been found difficult and left untried. The truth is, is that we are not resilient disciples and we do not know more of who Jesus is because we found it hard to set everything else aside. There is a reason that Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself or let him set aside his selfish ambitions and desires. And follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was—he um, was a man of, of means. He came from a family that was pretty wealthy. He was a professor, um, and he walked away from all of that, and founded the Confessing Church because he became so sick at the way the church in Germany was compromising to Hitler becoming state churches signing off on some of his actions he just couldn't stomach it anymore and so he left the church and the school where he was serving and he goes out and he starts this small gathering called Finkenwald and it's this community of people living together in Christian community and his friends, they just can't believe what Bonhoeffer's doing. They feel like they're, he's throwing his whole life away. He's got so much potential. He's got so many things. Uh, he's got so many advantages in life, and he's just walking away from all of it. And so they go out to Finkenwald, this place where he's gathered with this, this underground seminary, this underground leaders that he's training. And they go out there to try to convince him to not throw his life away. And, and Bonhoeffer doesn't say anything. He just listens to what they have to say, and he he invites them to come with him across the lake on a boat. And so he rows across this lake, and on the other side of the lake, there's this hill, and he takes them on this hike to the top of the hill. And at the top of the hill, you can see a camp where SS troops and Hitler youth are being trained. And Hitler points out this camp, or Bonhoeffer points out this Hitler camp to those that are with him. And then he points back at Finkenwald. And he says, This must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. Why did Bonhoeffer walk away from all of these things and establish this radical community of people following Jesus because he knew that their commitment to Christ had to be greater than the world's commitment to evil. Why aren't we resilient? Why aren't we like the starfish? Why is it that when we were severed from one another, instead of regenerating and reproducing, we shriveled up. Because we don't love Jesus as much as the world loves evil. Because we don't don't have a passion to follow Jesus that compares with this world's passion for evil. Jesus said, If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross. Let him deny himself. Let him set his selfish desires and ambitions aside and take up his cross and follow me. And when we hear cross, we hear this religious symbol that we're familiar with that hangs up in our churches and is on the back of our cars. But they would have heard, if anyone will follow me, let him take up his electric chair. Let him take up his guillotine. Let let him take up his lethal injection and follow me. There would have been no vague religiosity about the term cross for the disciples. I want, you to, I want you to think about something. When Jesus in heaven saw that the only way to come and to reunite us with God the Father, when he saw that the only way was to come down from heaven, live amongst us, and go through the cross, he took up the cross. Because Jesus so loved us. Because Jesus so wanted to be with us. Jesus so wanted to reunite us with the Father that he was willing to take up the cross. And what Jesus says to us is that we should have the same passion and love and desire to be with the Father. So much so that we're willing to take up a cross. The cross did not hinder Jesus from coming to us but you and I are so often hindered from coming to Jesus and literally following him, being with him, being in his presence, spending time with him by inconveniences. This will only be stronger than that if we are passionately following Jesus if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and we desire to be with him so strongly that we will deny all other things and take up our cross and follow him, then within each one of us there will be this gospel resiliency and also there will be within each one of us all of the necessary components for regeneration and replication, reproduction. How was this movement of a hundred people able to change the world because it was a movement of a hundred people who denied themselves and took up the cross. That's where we must get to. Father, I beg you that we would be people who want you enough that we would be willing to take up the cross and follow you. Lord, that we would be willing to deny all other things, that there would be nothing, not even death, that would hold us back from being with you. God, that we would have this desire to be with you. Lord, I pray that we would answer the two questions, who you are and what are we going to do about it, and that it would change our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.